Hi there, and welcome to Fantasy for the Ages, a show where father and son sit down and talk about things from fantasy books. I'm the son in that equation, Zach. And I'm the father, Jim. Thanks for being with us here today. Zach, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing all right. Just been reading and working, and right now I'm enjoying some coffee. It's spiked, but it's still coffee, and that's how I like it. What about you? Well, I've been reading and working and editing and editing and editing some more. The never-ending cycle. (laughs) I saw somebody put out on on Twitter recently a humorous comment about people who create content are simply people who don't have enough things to do in their life. (laughs) And what happens then is when you become content creators, now you have too much to do in your life. But that is a good problem to have. Yeah. No, I enjoy it. We enjoy being able to do this and to bring this content to all of you out there, our listeners. It's a lot of fun to do. Absolutely. Plus, we just like yakking about fantasy literature. Speaking of. Yes. Today, we're getting into a new book, right? We are. But I need to introduce my drink before we do that. Oh, sorry. It wasn't in the notes. It wasn't in the notes. It wasn't in the notes. (laughs) It's just part of the routine, my friend. I just forgot about it. Today, and you'll find this uh, a picture and recipe on our Instagram, of course. I have a lovely pink drink here. It's kind of a nice blood orangey pink. It's not like screaming at me that it's hot pink or anything, but it is pretty. <laughs> and thankfully, it doesn't look like uh, the other part of its name either. It's called a pink moose. Hey, what's wrong with looking like a moose? I don't want to drink one, but the drink is quite tasty. Features rum triple sec, little grenadine, and some pineapple juice. Why it's called a pink moose? I have yeah, no, no idea. idea. No None idea. of that has anything to do with a moose. But it was a new color to introduce into my drinks for our show. Pink. Pink. All right. This is a great episode for us now here. Heh. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Uh, we've accomplished the milestone of completing the first book in the Wheel of Time. We have only yeah. a bunch more to go. So with the eye of the world behind us, we now move into book two, The Great Hunt. There we go. Our journey through the eye of the world was a great way to establish our podcast. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got a lot of content, 20 episodes out there covering it, and most of those were on the eye of the world. I think we've hit our groove now. We kind of have our routine down of how this works. Now, he says this before we jinx ourselves and go into a massive episode that goes way longer than we expect, but we'll see. But at least we'll sound good. That should be the case. We've got our banter appropriately prepared, <laughs> you know. We we kind of know what we're doing now. And those of you who have listened all the way from the beginning, thank you for sticking with it. Oh, absolutely. I know some of it's been painful, especially that fourth episode, episode with my mic. Four. Yeah, that's an epic. So if you made it through, thank you for still being here. We appreciate you. And we do want to share our appreciation with all the many newer listeners we've been picking up mm-hmm. as time has gone along. Uh, It's fun when we notice, hey, new subscriber, because suddenly there's another 20 downloads all at once, which is is great. We have been picking up more people around the country, quite a few recently from Arlington, Texas area, Philadelphia, Baltimore, even Seattle. Fantastic. A bunch of new downloads in those regions. I love it. And then internationally, Australia is with us now. All right. India. We've got some listeners in India. Quite a few more in the United Kingdom and France now. Nice. France is still kicking everybody else's butt, (laughs) so there may be some VPN going on there, I still think. (laughs) They're all channeling through France. Or the French really love our podcast. But it's it's no contest compared to all the other countries. 
It could just happen. Yep. And if there's just a lot of French listeners, let us know you're real. Email us, connect with us on social media. All the links for those things are in our show notes. But we want to know, are you really there? Send it to us in English or French. The French, neither of us can read, but we know some people who can (laughs) try to translate it for us. That's true. All right, then. Let's get started. We do have a lot to cover in this particular episode. Yes. There is something specifically to reference before we move into the prologue of the Mm -hmm. book. And that is there's a quotation that starts off on, on a page just before the prologue. And it's a quote from the Koreathon cycle, which is subtitled The Prophecies of the Dragon. Do we just want to reference it or do you want me to read it? I'm just going to reference it. Okay. I want to point out that these sorts of quotations will appear throughout the series. Absolutely. Sometimes at the beginning of a book, sometimes at the end of a book, sometimes both. They are filled with foreshadowing, which is, you know, basically what prophecy is. It's Mm -hmm. telling what's going to come in some way. Though it's really fun, in my opinion, to see if you're keeping track of the history and the timeline, sometimes it's foreshadowing and sometimes it's a history. True. We are in the third age and sometimes we'll see things written saying they're from the second or earlier in the third age or even in the fourth age. When things are written is different. So this particular one is from when? The year of grace 231 of the new era, the third age. Definitely prophecy of what was to come and referencing the dragon reborn. Which, if you remember, at the end of The Eye of the World, that was one of the last things Moraine said. Yep, she just kind of dropped that bomb and was like, it happened. Yep, the dragon is reborn and, and was clearly identifying Rand. The Wheel of Time prologue. We've got prologues in just about every book. I think it I is think every, every book. book. But they're going to do something interesting. <laughs> Basically, as you move through the series, the prologues get longer and longer and longer. By the end, it's like 100, 200 pages for just the prologue. It's like multiple chapters, really, but it's all just prologue. And then you'll get to chapter one. <laughs> and it's often stuff that really, especially on a first read, is important, but doesn't always make perfect sense. But tells a lot that we don't see otherwise in the story. Well, and later in the series, Robert Jordan would use the prologue to kind of catch you up sometimes on what various different characters are up to before then moving on to the main focus of whatever that particular book is. When you've got so many storylines going on, especially when some of them don't get really get touched that much in the previous book just because there was so much going on, it's nice to have it previously on. But this prologue, it holds a special place in Wheel of Time fans' hearts. Mm. It has the nickname the Dark Friends Social because we've got a group of dark friends all gathered for some special reason. And we're going to learn a whole bunch that has to do with what's to come. But also it just reveals some key information about the Wheel of Time as a whole. And we're going to kind of go through that here now and see what are we seeing. Now, there is a lot of foreshadowing. We're going to try not to give major spoilers as we do this, which is going to be hard. But bear with us. We'll try Mm -hmm. to just highlight what's significant about this and then leave you hanging on a whole bunch of things. (laughs) And I will do my best to do it just a bit at a time. Well, there you go. (laughs) This particular prologue does have a title. Mm. It's called In the Shadow. And it comes to us from the point of view of a man named Bors. The first thing we know is that's a fake name. Yeah. 
All the people in this room are hiding their identities. The book itself says, The man who called himself Bors, at, at least, least in, in this, this place. place. Yeah. So he's in this large chamber, about a hundred other people, and all of them are wearing black masks to hide their identities. So Bors doesn't know who any of these other people are. Not even in the slightest. Although he may start to guess. He's certainly going to try. Mm -hmm. He believes information is very important. So he's going to try to glean some information here. But, you know, he also doesn't even know really where he is. No. Now that's, you know, that's interesting. That's kind of odd. You know, he's come to this place, but he doesn't know where. And as you, as you read the description of what it was like in the place, like the fire that's not giving off any heat, mm -hmm. what does the setting remind you of from anything we've learned so far in this series, Zach? From what we've seen so far, the first immediate thing that you can think of is the way that Matt, Perrin, and Brand get sucked into these dreams of Alzaman. These things that they don't intentionally get there, but they're summoned, if you will. And in this space that, in a way, fits some of the description we see here. Mm -hmm. So that was always a dream that they were being sucked into in the last book. Are these people, you think, in a dream? Maybe. <laughs> Hard to be sure? Hard to say for sure with the information we have up to this point. But you know, by the end of the prologue, we do have more information. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to go out and say it here now. I think it's pretty clear they're not in a dream. But At least they, not as we understand it. But they haven't gotten here in a traditional way. No. They didn't just get on a horse and ride and show up here. So, Wherever they are, they are physically there. Yeah. And we'll talk about where they are just a little bit further. Let's move in further into this prologue. Bors mentions that he's here because he was summoned. Mm -hmm. And he's assuming everybody was summoned. And this is a kind of summoning that you don't turn down. You don't decline this. You don't say, nah, I'm busy this weekend. How about next week? We don't know exactly what the summoning was. It's just, it was clear, you will come. And there, maybe they were brought. <laughs> there was no hanging threat. It was just, you don't say no. And I think this is important in that I think it is something where they were brought. So it wasn't just, hey, come along. They actually were grabbed and brought here in some way. But we'll talk about that more in a bit. Mm-hmm. So Boars and all the others, when this opens up, they're just standing around waiting. They're waiting for the one who summoned them. They don't even entirely know just who summoned them. This is all kind of mystery. So while sitting around, he's looking at the other people. He's trying to see, what can I learn about these others? He notices that while most people are, are kind of disguised like he is, he's wearing a big bulky black cloak and he's even hunched over to try to make himself mm -hmm. look shorter. He's trying to give nobody clues of who he might be. And they're all wearing masks, mm -hmm. to be clear. They all have masks, but about a quarter of the people haven't bothered with anything other Beyond than the masks. Mask. He can read a little more into some of those people. But there's a number of things, therefore, that he can tell about this crowd. I thought mm -hmm. the first one I'd just highlight is the servants. There are servants walking around offering drinks to the guests. Mm -hmm. And he thinks to himself, you know, servants know everything. Maybe I can pump one of the servants for some information about who summoned us, what's going on, where are we? How does that go? Not well. He locks eyes and immediately realizes there's blankness there. There's no one home. Um, she's smiling. Now, she's ready to serve. But yep. What I think is Nothing. most notable about that is he then goes on to kind of think in his head, 
he always has been in a position of looking for whether or not he can find uh, weaknesses, whether in his enemies or the people he serves. And he notes if his masters right now don't have weaknesses, what could that mean? Every time he tries to look for one, like with the servants, they've thought through that already. Yeah, it's kind of ominous. Uh, looking around then at the other people, okay, I'm not going to learn anything from the servants. What can I see? He sees one of the people with just a mask is clearly a noblewoman from Ilion. Mm -hmm. Just from her style of dress, it's very obvious. Another is a noblewoman from Eridoman. There's a soldier from Shinar. Mm -hmm. Shinar. Shinar. <laughs> we'll work with it. <laughs> a high lord of Tyr. Now, again, we don't know what all these things no, mean we necessarily. We haven't learned a lot of what these He's places are this. even. But we will assure you, dear reader, these are all places you're going to become familiar with. At the very least, if you want, you can always go look at the map. All of these places yes. are already listed. So it might take a little bit of searching if you haven't come across them in the story yet. But it's not but that big a map. Yeah, they can find it. A highly ranked officer of the Andorran Queensguard. We've met those ones in Camelot. We have. A man from the Seafolk. Seafolk? I think the they were mentioned. were referenced. I don't think they've They been... were mentioned. Um... Yeah. Because they were mentioned, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, people who'd know this, while they were on Bail Doman's ship, as they were talking about various peoples and stories, oh, and they saw that okay. tower in the distance, and they were talking about wonderful, crazy things that they've seen in the oh, world. Oh, yeah. And there was that big, like, glass ball with a hand sticking out of their island, and that's when the sea folk were really mentioned. Okay, okay, nice. Nice recollection on that. Others that he noticed look like merchants, warriors, commoners, nobles. But he's saying from every nation and nearly every people, this crowd of a hundred. There's, even... notes, there's a tinker. Yeah, holy cow, a tinker. Way of the leaf tinker. So there is a at least one tinker dark friend. Maybe two. There could be more. That's right. But the point we're getting here that's being dropped is there truly are dark friends everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's going to be important. So remember that. I mean, uh, foreshadowing. Dark friends everywhere. And let's go with that everywhere. He notices two other individuals that, to be fair here, Bors notices the tinker and kind of scoffs and goes, well, we'll yeah, be fine if, the, if he like dies off or something. That's fine. But then he notices two other people that he's like, nah, I'd be okay with, they, if, with them dying more. Oh, yeah. No, I, I want them dead. Dead, dead, dead. <laughs> yeah, he notices two Aes Sedai. Which means, dun, dun, dun. at the very least, it sounds like uh, Baalzaman wasn't entirely lying about no. there being servants within the tower. That's right. These would be that Black Aja that's been mentioned in the first book already. If they are truly Aes Sedai and Dark Friends, that's bad. Yeah. And, you know, it's telling about Bors, his reaction here. Mm -hmm. that he refers to them as witches. And yes, he would clearly like them dead. That's foreshadowing. Think, people. Think of who, what characters have we perhaps come across already in the first book that always refer to Aes Sedai as witches and would kill them if they could. And if you don't figure it out in about five minutes, I'll probably tell you. <laughs> it's right there at the end of the... Uh, it's pretty obvious at the end of the prologue. So let's get to that. He's looked at all of this stuff, and then there's a chime and doors at the end of the room open, and Trollocs come walking in, mm -hmm. and then a Myrdral... And the Myrdral commands them to grovel on their bellies as their master is coming. They don't take orders to grovel from Myrdral very well. 
No, Boar's comments in his mind kind of thinking when the Dark One is more walking around again and things come to pass that they're looking for, he's like, I might be chosen as a Dreadlord and you might bow to me. Mm -hmm. He's a bit pompous. You know, there's not a single person who joins the Dark Friends going, you know, I just want to be a servant and be a peon in the army, so I'm going to sign up as a Dark Friend. It's kind of like a necessary requirement to be ambitious and selfish. Every last one of them believes they will rule everyone. Now, they've not thought this through, because how does everyone rule everyone? <laughs> but here we are. Get down on your, on your face, peons. Your master is here. Okay, again, they're not even sure really who summoned them, but I guess we better get down. And then the master comes. There's a a moment where Boris is thinking, and I'm sure others are thinking too, the master? Do you really mean the master? Like the Dark Mm -hmm. One himself? The Great Lord of the Dark is here? I mean, they all like start doing this creepy chanting thing, giving a whole paragraph of like their allegiances and oaths to the Dark. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's like physically draining for them to say. Yeah. It emphasizes that these people are all sworn to the Dark. But, you know, when these people swore to the dark, it was about power. It was about advancement, maybe revenge, greed, whatever. Mm -hmm. Most of them really didn't ever think they would see anyone more powerful than they were. No, not really. At least of all the dark one. This was in the time that the dark one and all the forsaken are locked away in Shyogul. Even as they swear to serve the dark, they're thinking a couple hundred years probably I'll Unless the Dark One lets me live forever, I'm probably going to be dead by the time anything actually happens. Yeah, so I'm going to join this club that lets me do whatever I want to people and lets me feel more important Mm -hmm. than everyone else. Maybe it makes me rich, lets me kill someone if they're in the way. Sounds like fun. I bet they have cookies. Totally not a cult. (laughs) Hashtag not a cult. (laughs) Uh... So they're all groveling. All wondering, is this literally the Dark One? Is he here now? Has something changed? And then they hear a male voice that does not, you know, it's not like, Now rise, peons. You know, it's no, not it's, some it's, Dark One voice. Nah. It's a very nice, pleasant sounding man who commands them to rise. And they start rising. They're kind of hesitant. And he's like, in more insistent, rise, you know. And they see this man floating in the air above the mirror drill in Trollocs. He's masked. And Boris is like, okay, well, it's not the dark one. I'm pretty sure that's not what the dark one would look like. He does stand out different, though. He's fully robed and masked in red, whereas everyone else was all this black and stuff. He really stands out. And what does Boris think? Maybe this is a Forsaken. It's someone floating in the air. It's someone who clearly has some power. He's like, maybe the Forsaken are starting to get free of the prison. It's not the Dark One, but this could be one of those that have been locked away when Luce Theron and the Hundred Companions sealed Sheogul. Mm-hmm. He has that thought. Give Boris some props, man, because yeah. yes, this is a Forsaken. I mean, it's not too far out of the realm of belief, but it very clearly tells him he is a small fish right now. <laughs> oh, yes. I can't float like that. And we very quickly get more clues that not only is it a Forsaken, it's one we've met before. Mm -hmm. Because he gestures with his hands and we can see that they're all horribly scarred. He introduces himself. Then he introduces himself. But before he introduces himself, come on, I was reading. I was like, hey, I know who this is. Well, here's my conundrum here. 
You've introduced him and said he's a a Forsaken. Up until this point, we weren't sure of that. Moraine had suggested maybe that instead. But as far as we knew, this was the Dark One. But I said it because Bors thought it. Yes. It wasn't I suggested it. Robert Jordan suggested it right there. But he introduces himself as Baalzaman. Yes. Thus reinforcing the idea that this is the same kind of place that Rand, Matt, and Perrin were. And yet not exactly. No. Because Baalzaman's now going to go ahead and share just a little bit of information. If you remember, Baalzaman likes to monologue. He does. He falls <laughs> into the bad guy trope. He does. Sometimes. Now, Baalzaman is the Trolloc name we learn for the Dark One. No. Yes. It, no, it translates to Heart of the Dark. It, but it's what they use when they talk other about people, the Dark One. Yeah, they know. Other people know that Trollocs refer to the Great Lord of the Dark as that. Right. But Trollocs are potentially dumb. What about Narg? I do actually want to give uh, stop on, here Narg, and mention man. Narg <laughs> and give Trollocs some credit. You actually came out and said the thing you would have changed about the last book was have <laughs> Narg not speak. One Trolloc who spoke comment. there are a couple actual times that we see Trollocs speak. That's the only one we, I think, are given dialogue. But it is mentioned at least like two other times in later books that someone remarks, Trollocs can speak? Mm, yeah. But we even hear, we saw it in the ways, Trollocs have script. They have a language that they refer to the Dark Runes. One as. Yeah. Okay. And no, they have a written and spoken language. Trollocs are literate. They are actually... The Trollocs have Trolloc school? They must in some way, they shape, or form. They go to university and you know, get degrees? They're probably not that advanced, <laughs> but they at least have some base amount of intelligence beyond just a bestial tribal nature. They have more structure in society and enough to have language that is both written and spoken. Okay. That says a lot. So when we learn that this name, Baalzaman, is what the Trollocs use to refer to the Dark One, but it actually has a meaning, the heart of the Dark. Mm-hmm. What it really is saying is this man has chosen to take upon himself a name that the Trollocs use for the Dark One. So he's not necessarily saying he's the Dark One. But he's saying for the Trollocs, he represents it and stands for that. And as Bors looks, I mean, the Trollocs and the Mirdril look terrified right now. He might as well be the Dark One in that room. Yes, yes, from their perspective. Baalzaman shares that they are gathered in the shadow of Sheogul. What does that mean? We don't know. (laughs) Not exactly. If we're talking in a physical sense, it means they're somewhere way up north by Sheogul. Are they in the Blasted Lands? And if they looked out a window, they'd see, there it is, and we're in its shadow. But we also talk about things like the shadow being a more collective term. We talk about people being of the shadow, in the shadow, friends of the dark, all of these shadow spawn it's possibly a loose term, meaning it's like under the watchful gaze of the Dark One, maybe. Perhaps. He also says that the day of the Master's return is near, and he will remake the world in his own image. Those who serve him will rule the world forever. The words Baalzaman uses mm-hmm. are vague, and I think this cat is doing this very intentionally. Oh, yeah. I think he is walking a line. He's telling I said I truths. He is. He is. Because this is Balzaman. He is not the Dark One. He is a Forsaken. But he's allowing people to perhaps think he is the Dark One. 
He's not saying no. he's the dark one. No, no, but he's giving very simple statements that can be really Seemingly referenced. simple statements. Yeah, and yeah. they just get referenced and believed and assumed that they mean certain things when truthfully it may or may not really be what he's saying. Man, he is so subtle. But Alzaman then goes on to create three images for them all to view, which we can easily identify as, because we, you know, have read book one, Matt, Perrin, and Rand. He doesn't give any names. He just says, these are significant people, and one of them is going to be the Dragon Reborn. Hi, boys. He wants everyone in the room to memorize what these people look like. They are important. He plans, Balzaman, plans to guide these people to do his bidding. I have a question for you. Yeah. Why doesn't he tell them which one? He knows. Yeah, we're pretty sure he knows. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure he has reason. Maybe it's just like Aes Sedai. He only tells them what he thinks they need to know. I think that's more like... He doesn't want people to get over-ambitious and try and make their own machinations. Right. So, I it's mean, come fair, on. Who's but... been attracted to the dark friends? The ones who want power and are going to yeah. advance themselves any way they can. But he does share his ultimate goal is to see the dragon turned to serve him. Yeah, he says, don't kill him. He will serve the Lord of the Dark in this age or another. Yeah. At which point, Boris is like, wait, 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 another? Yeah, I'm in this one. He's... I'd like it to be now, And let's maybe? be real, he's here now. We don't need to care about others. <laughs> then Balzman gives instructions individually to each of the attendees, one after another. No one can hear what is being said to another. The Myrdral and Trollocs, they're gone, by the way, now. So it's just Balzman, and then one-on-one -on -one encounters with everyone in the room. So he'll see somebody just suddenly in the grasp raptured for a moment, completely caught up by Baalzaman, and nodding and responding, but can't hear a thing. When it gets to Bor's turn, he receives some specific directions. Mm -hmm. These are important also in figuring out later fully who Bor's is. It's three main instructions. Yes. Number one, return to Terabon and redouble his efforts on the good works he's been doing out there. Now, it does say good in italicized lettering italicies italics italics there we go i got there english, eventually english is fun english is hard <laughs> um but no it's implied that these good works aren't necessarily good things really i didn't read it that way i kind of read it as he was doing some things that well, were good it, i think it's a double meaning it, oh. it goes one of two ways and we don't at this point know exactly what it is but it's either things that are being done in the name of good but are actually quite bad things and Could i be seen that way by other groups and yeah. i think as we learn more about this individual and what they're doing both of these are kind of true the yes. other is that they may actually be good things but it's with a secret subtle evil plot mm. and that's why it's good works secondly he's supposed to watch for the three men and have all his followers so he clearly leads people have them all be on the lookout for these three men and third regarding those who have landed at toman head Dot, dot, dot. We don't get to hear what that is, but we learn there are people who have landed at Toman Head. We don't know where Toman Head is. We haven't heard anything about this. We know it must be somewhere near the Domani because they're mentioned as well. And connected with Terabon, maybe, because that's where he's returning. But he's told to speak of it to no one. That's right. Don't share that information. Don't let it spread. We also know that the specific orders Boris receives make no sense to him. It's like, what? And then Bors is subjected to a whole bunch of visions, just flashes of things. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole list of stuff that makes no sense to mostly to us either. But that's the point. It makes no sense to Bors. 
makes you, no sense to us. You have a few mentioned here, and I think the few that you're mentioned are things that we actually can guess what they are based on what we already have seen. But I actually want to make note of a couple of the others as well. Okay. Well, what do you want to make mention of? Which of those visions jump out for you that you want to highlight? The woman or girl dressed in white is confusing to me. I was clueless. Otherwise. Like, I think... <laughs> I have a couple ideas, none of which that I can actually say yet. Yep, no spoilers. Um, but that's something that's right. that I think we will maybe see, but have not yet. Okay. The next that I really enjoy is a raven that stares him in the eye, knowing him, and then is gone. And I really, really love that one personally. I'm a huge fan of motifs throughout these books of foxes and ravens. Uh-huh. And they appear a lot. What spoilers just thanked you for the plug, by the way. Yeah. Foxes and ravens. (laughs) But that means something that we may not necessarily know eventually. And it actually means a couple of different things could be interpreted multiple ways. At least two that are very cool. So keep an eye out for ravens. Beyond just how they connect to the dark. All right. And then I think the rest really are just ones that you've already written down and mentioned here. So he sees an armored man with a helm, like a monstrous insect. That's really significant foreshadowing. So watch for something like that. It's going to make sense later. A curled and golden horn. Now that one you should already be able to figure out. Have you not seen the helm yet? Mm Mm-mm. I think we might have had a mention of something. But it may not have been fully mentioned what it is. Yeah, yeah. But we've seen it, even if it wasn't described yet. Okay. And a wolf leaping from the shadows and ripping out his throat. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> but we, we do have a character connected to wolves. There's probably some significance there. Maybe in some way, shape, or form. Bors then is left as Balzaman moves on to other people. And he's just staring at these three figures again, floating in the air before him. But before he knows it, the meeting is over. And he's taken back to his room by one of these brainless servants. He's told to change and prepare to leave. And this is where we get confirmation that this is a real place. This is not some Because he changes back into real clothes. He's got his saddlebags. He's got stuff. And significantly, the clothes he changes into is a white cloak with a red shepherd's crook beneath the sun, a symbol of his office. Now, we haven't seen a shepherd's crook, although it's been referenced in the first book. Mm -hmm. Okay. But this will make more sense later on in this book. Because it's been referenced, can I say what that pertains to? No, that'd be too much at this point. We don't know enough. But we do know from this, we can figure out... He's a white cloak. The dude's a white cloak. If you haven't figured it out yet, Boris is a white cloak. So white cloaks who exist to hunt out dark friends and work for the light. And this guy who has, remember, followers, he's a commander of some sort. He's a dark friend. Nice. Yay. They really are everywhere. I mean, are we, are we really that surprised with what we've seen? Yeah. There's some white cloaks that just have sucked, haven't they, Rin? Yeah. Yeah, pretty high percentage. Man. But hey, we will also perhaps see not all white cloaks are bad. Maybe it could change. Maybe. Maybe. One last note here. Mm-hmm. I mentioned he had saddlebags. He's got supplies with him. So he is really at Sheogul or in the shadow of Sheogul. He journeyed in some way. So speculation here. Could we say he traveled he somewhere? No, nah, he, he definitely did. Uh, I mean, he traveled. Some form of traveling to get across this distance. It's, it's really remarkable. It's People probably not from, from his own all power. All over the world, remember. Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't know where he is. 
most likely. Let's be real here. He's a white cloak. He had no ability to do this, but somebody did some form of... Using the power. Power. I was going to be like, it's magic, but <laughs> we don't really use that term in the series. And to better understand that, check out our midweek special <laughs> <laughs> on the magic system of the world of time. The wheel of time. The <laughs> No, no. The it's the time. world of time now nice yes we talk about the nature of whether or not it is a loop linear uh an you know, inverted this, this pink donut moose shape. is really good he's almost done with it <laughs> and we just got through the prologue we did okay and we that, have five more chapters to do in a long we not do. a lot of time this is to do be it. a healthy size episode but i gotta tell you none of the chapters are as bulky and significant as the prologue so i knew we'd take a lot of time talking about that I think it, the rest of the, these chapters really set up a lot of things, and so they are potentially important, but a lot of it is flavor. But they're a good self-contained arc, chapters one through five, which is why we are yeah. going through all of them today. Okay. But final notes on the prologue before this gets <laughs> away from us. What have we learned? Uh, That's key. Belzaman's still alive. Yep. Ren did not kill him. He's still looking at the boys and how has set a whole bunch of dark friends on their trail as well. Mm -hmm. He also has a whole bunch of other plans that aren't necessarily connected with each other, but that he has connected in a bunch of ways. And as we already talked about, we hear about a bunch of new countries. The world mm -hmm. building has expanded right here. And we're going to, the ones that you hadn't heard of before, you're soon, if not in this book, in coming books, going to be and have encounters with. Even if we do not see a country for the next, I don't know, four or five books, rest assured, Baalzaman has set plans in motion there already. Because dark friends are everywhere. Okay, time for chapter one, called The Flame of Tarvalon. Nope, try again. The Flame of Tarvalon. Try again. <laughs> you do it. I don't like your way. My way's correct. The Flame of Tarvalon. Come on, Jen, help me out here. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, we find Rand working out with Lan up on top of one of the towers for the keep in Faldara. So now, right where we left them at at the end of the last book. Now, they're not pumping iron, per se. They're sparring with swords. They are, but not real swords. It's a, a practice swords. They're made of wood. Reminds wood me, laths. It reminds me of, like, the kendo swords. Are you not familiar? Uh, anime? I don't know. It's blank. No, no, it's a uh, real thing. It's... Uh, we should i would find you a picture but i don't have it near but me no it's I bits pictured... of like almost multiple things i'm gonna be totally wrong with exactly what multiple i say multiple thin but... pieces of wood yeah in kendo you use like it's a bunch of pieces of like small bamboo or something strapped together to make a sword itself partially mm -hmm. so that it still is firm and unyielding so it does not break but with enough give that it doesn't like kill you when it hits you well that's kind of the intent with this practice sword for sure yeah, yeah. I, I think that's where the inspiration for something like this is more from that idea they've been working hard rand is slick with sweat and even the warder is showing he's worked up a little bit not nearly to the degree of rand no but i mean he's got warder stuff yeah also noticeably rand has three different marks from where lan has scored Whack. some blows and Whack. Lan has not been touched. <laughs> he is, I believe the word was badass. Yeah. 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 Lan's a total badass. And that Rand is said, still learning. It is evident that Rand has learned quite a bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He is much better than Rand he used to be. Rand is a bit of a specimen of a human. And he's putting those muscles and frame to use. I mean, he's the same height as Lan, yeah. it says. Lan's, Lan's more buff. 
but I think Rand's taller. No, it said about the same height, right? In this They're reference, actually. Similar, but I think officially Rand is a little taller, just a little. But we do see here, Lan is the better swordsman. Not shocking. Mm-hmm. He's been doing this for decades. He was born with a sword in his hands. Rand is showing he has picked up a thing or two. But as they're sparring, there comes a moment where Lan lunges in for a poke. And Rand, oh, he's going to get me. You know, he knows it's coming. But he tries to duck out of the way and he can't move. The air behind him turns into a solid wall. It's not nice. It's, it's just not fair. It's like, what the heck? And this happens very fast. Lan is anticipating Rand is going to get out of the way. So he's really poking pretty hard. His sword gets him right in the chest. And then the wind behind Rand pushes him into the sword. It's like, what? 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 The sword being this practice sword, it bends Bends and flexes and and then shatters. But it leaves scrapes and gouges all over Rand's chest. And Lan is like, dude, what the heck? You're better than that. What are you doing? And he's like, no, 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 no. The wind shoved me into it. Like, it was solid. I could not get out of the way. Let's give Lan some credit here. He doesn't say, you're terrible and dumb and making excuses. He says, weird things happen when you're close to the blight. But he looks troubled. So he's not just dismissing it. He's like, "Mm." no, but he's believing Rand that something funky did happen. But then Lan just tries to move the conversation on. And he asks, so dude, when are you leaving? And we get from this point here now, this is about a month after they got back from the Blight at the end of the first book. And if you remember, at the end of the first book, Rand was Let's about to leave. Here. He'd had a conversation with Lan right there saying, you know, I, I can leave still, right? And Lan's like, hey, you, you are free to do as you wish. And now uh, it's a month later and he's still here. He keeps dragging his feet for whatever reason. And Lan is like, so, you know, why are you here? And Rand's like, well, I, I need to get better with this sword. Uh, you know, this heron mark blade has caused me trouble already. I need to know how to handle it. I've got to learn. And we get a little side conversation here where Lan suggests he sells it because this sword is a special sword. Even mm-hmm. even amongst heron mark blades, this would sell for a pretty penny. And he's surprised to discover Rand doesn't realize just how special the sword is. Mm-hmm. What do we learn? We get a little exposition. What do we learn about this sword? This is Aes Sedai make from way back in the War of Power, still during the Age of Legends. This is a power wrought sword, meaning it was made both with the power and actual forging. Mm -hmm. And it's a skill that is actually not really remembered anymore. Well, we don't know about remembered. It's not remembered how to be done. It's refused to be done. Is it? Aes Sedai have sworn now, and this happened about 2,000 years ago, maybe a little farther back than that, they swore to never make a weapon that could be used to harm man. They swore not to do it, and I I thought that they learned, like, they no longer know how to do it because they haven't done it in so many thousands Um, of years. I think they could figure it out still, but it's one of their oaths, so they won't do it anymore. And therefore, this is a weapon made by Aes Sedai, and it was specifically made for fighting against the Shadow, Mm -hmm. but it could be used against anybody, so they will not make things like this anymore. It's meant to be unbreakable, never needing to be sharpened, the ultimate sword. And Lan knows a lot about this kind of sword, because his sword is also... Yeah, his sword, much less ostentatious and much simpler looking. It doesn't probably have a heron mark, but a it's... simple soldier's sword from the Age of Legends, the War of Power. But the description we get is that his sword looks very similar to Rand's, actually. But stylistically, it's similar. Yeah. 
just doesn't have that heron mark. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's kind of the same sword. <laughs> I believe it doesn't have like the golden, shiny craziness. It's just. But it does style. because of the, the Aes Sedai rotness. It likewise never needs to be sharpened. Yes, it's more, more just that he hangs on to it for the functionality of it himself. Now, I want to uh, highlight that. If you are really sharp, remember, land sword never needs to be sharpened. You mean if you're really sharp like his sword? Yeah. Because it will come up humorously later. I'm just going to say that. Rand's response is, seriously? Even my sword is is involved with Aes Sedai? Yeah, sorry, I want nothing Rand. to do with Aes Sedai. You can't get away. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, he doesn't exactly want nothing to do with Aes Sedai. And Lan pushes him on why he's still there a bit. Yeah, it's not just about learning a sword. Come on, why and are you still here? It comes out Rand is, well, he's kind of pissed <laughs> that Moraine's avoiding him for a month. Moraine helped him recognize and come to terms with the fact he can channel. He's going to go mad. And then she has had nothing to do with him and has acted like he's not important at all anymore. And he's like, you have to be able to help me in some way, shape, or form, right? And she's just like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about it. And you're free to do what you want. Doesn't matter to me. Lan counters that Moiraine likely has shared all she can, and he should just be satisfied with the fact that she's leaving him freedom. She's not trying to gentle him. Just be good with it, dude. Nah, he will never be satisfied. And then the conversation is interrupted by the sounds of drums and fanfare, and and they're up on a tower, so they have a view. They look off in the distance. They see a grand procession coming up to the entrance to Faldara, and this is going to be where your word usually should come in here now. Well, shit. Yes, because it's a procession of Aes Sedai. There Ooh, are really three, multiple. Yeah, there are really three things that Land kind of notes. One is that they're Aes Sedai. Two is that Ingtar is with them, returning from having been hunting, apparently. Mm-hmm. And three, it's not just Aes Sedai. It's the Aes Sedai. It's the Amerlin seat. Amerlin seat. How do we want to say that? I say Amerlin, but... Yeah. I, think I, I always used to say the Amerlin seat, but I'm sure it's Amerlin I want to say Amerlin is what the audiobooks yeah. was, and that's... Again, this yeah. is one of those times where I read these books so long ago and so many times, it's entrenched in my own brain certain way, and I will try Personally, to go with more common. Anytime we put, like, <laughs> almost weird emphasis... Emphasis? Uh, sure. In, like, the middle of a word or something, well, a it, Merlin it breaks it up a little bit. Well, Amerlin was great with Tarvalon. But... Both of those are putting an emphasis in a weird spot to me. So the Amerlin seat. Oh, that sounds hard. Heck, I think a lot of people say Amerlin. Okay, let's go with Um, Amerlin. And that's not normal for me either. I say Amerlin, but... (laughs) I think we're spending too much time talking about this pronunciation. Eh, it's okay. Lan is like, oh, dude, it would have been better if you were gone already at least a week because you're in trouble now. He doesn't say you're in trouble, but you're That's surrounded now implied. by Aes Sedai. The implication is strong. You wanted to escape it? That's not going to happen anymore. Yeah. Now, would you take a moment to just point out for our listeners, what is the Amerlin seat? Okay, so the Amerlin seat is... It's not a chair. No, it's more... I mean, it is, but it is more a position. It is a ruling entity-ish that at this point all we really know is the head of all Aes Sedai. Okay. Uh, we'll learn more about her later. Is in charge of the White Tower in Tarvalon. Yep. And Lan heads off 
leaves Rand to just fret about the new development. End of chapter. See, that was much faster than prologue. Okay, chapter two, the welcome. Let's keep it rolling. We see Rand moving through the keep now, heading back to the men's apartments. He's passing various other Shinaran men. They're all moving in haste. They're all excited. The Amerlin seat is here. He hears various comments to him that she must be here because of Moiraine and, and Rand and his people. And what an honor that she's come to meet with them. And Rand is paranoid and panicking. <laughs> One even mentions that, you know, you might want to go get cleaned up. Because <laughs> it's likely only a matter of time before she calls for you. It's like, ah! So he needs to leave. This is what's in his mind. Okay, I put it off. I put it off. I put it off. Okay, I need to go now. Now's the time. I'm going to go grab my stuff. I am out of here. Hit the road before she has a chance to call for me. So he goes to go change out of what he was sparring in and get his things and get ready to go. (laughs) We get a really funny scene. (laughs) Yeah. He gets back to his room and there's a whole bunch of women in there. Whole bunch of servants at the keep, and they are pulling out all of his clothes and Matt's clothes and Perrin's clothes. They've been sharing the room. They say, yeah, Moiraine said all of your clothes were all worn out, so we're supposed to remove them all. And the Lady Amelisa, who is the sister of Lord Agomar, yes, has had new clothes made for all of you. So we're replacing everything. They're fancy. Rand's like, I just want to get out of here, but I can't say that to them. So he's like, okay, well, I'd like to change. She's like, okay, that's great, because I'm supposed to take all your clothes. Including the ones you're wearing. Even your small clothes, so get them off. And she's just standing there. Uh-huh. He's like, I, I, could, I could use some privacy. There's a different sense of propriety here we get, you know, between the cultures. Well, and she teases him a little bit, more or less being like, when he says he's all done, saying, do I have to come in and check? Make sure you actually got rid of your small clothes. It's uncomfortable for Rand. You know, and, and this is a case where they know he's uncomfortable, so they just can't help poking him a little bit having some fun at his expense which is great i wouldn't be a fan of the (laughs) not respecting his boundaries but that's just like my view on cultural differences here but that being said rand also should be welcome to step out of his comfort zone a little end of story here his clothes are all gone now he can get his stuff together so he looks at the new clothes, let me put something on, and he's like, holy crap! It's all fancy embroidered lord's this is, clothes. Yeah, this is what a lord would wear. There's no normal clothes. You are not going to be able to just travel on the road like a common traveler. Anyone sees me in this stuff, they're going to think, I'm rich. I'm practically royalty. What the heck? And then he's like, oh man, this is Moiraine again. This is not Lady Amelisa's idea. And what seals the deal is there's two cloaks, traveling cloaks. Mm -hmm. One of them is just a plain cloak. I mean, well-made, high-quality stuff, but just a plain cloak. The other one, it's got along the edges a whole bunch of herons, and on the breast where a lord might have his sigil, the friggin' dragon is there. Yeah, from the banner. Are you kidding me? Lady Amelisa didn't come up with that. So, Rand sees Moraine's hand here. You got rid of all my clothes. Now I've got new clothes that make me look important. And if I wear the best stuff, make me look like the bloody dragon reborn. Thank you very much. Great. (laughs) And that's all I have to wear to see potentially the Omerlin seat if I can't get out. (sighs) Crazy. 
So what Rand does is he grabs what he figures are the least fancy of all the clothes, bundles them up into his saddlebags, grabs out Tom's Gleeman cloak, which he still has, and mm-hmm. Tom's instruments. And he takes those two and gets everything together. He leaves most of these new clothes, but he gets a few things. Gets like a change of clothes along with what yep. he's wearing. Yep. And heads out to try to leave. We say try. To try. It's not successful. He's going to head down to where his horse is in the stable. But then he thinks, okay, there's two different routes I could take there. One would take me right past the courtyard where the Aes Sedai are entering. And it might be smarter to take the long way and avoid that. But I could probably get a peek before anybody notices I'm there. And just, you know, not even stop. Just kind of pass by and see. Because... I mean, to see the Amerlin seat, seat, why not? Get a peek. And why not? without even really thinking too hard about it, he's doing what he probably shouldn't. He's heading to the courtyard. So he does that. Can we say Taviran? Perhaps. He gets there. He makes his way close enough to be, have a good line of sight. And he sees the Aes Sedai and their warders and other soldiers all proceed in. There's one palaquin. And that's clearly what the palanquin. That, no, I just have no idea what that is. Uh, it's it's they carry it, and someone's riding inside, resting like on a mattress. You know what I mean? I just didn't know that was a word for something. Like I vaguely understand what you're saying. I don't know what other word you'd use for it. It's a palanquin. So instead of a coach, where you're riding on yeah. wheels and you have seats, it's just like you've got pole bearer, bearers exactly, and stuff exactly and being carried. Yep. I just didn't inside know what that, is. and you can't see inside it, that's where the Merlin seat is. And so there's a formal ceremony. Words are said that are clearly very formalized and traditional. It's a whole thing, and people at the borderlands are all for their custom and tradition. Yep. But in the ceremony, we hear three terms said out loud. Yes. One, the Watcher of the Seals. Mm-hmm. That's a title pertaining to the Merlin seat. We have heard seals mentioned a couple other times here. We've seen a seal. Most notably mentioned as the seals on the Dark One's prison. We've seen two seals, if you remember right. Have we actually seen two or just heard about the second? I don't don't think we've seen the other one yet. I thought we saw it. I don't think so yet. I think that's in this book. I thought we saw it. I'm pretty sure it's in this book. All right. There might be another one. If you remember that we saw a seal in the eye of the world, then go, yep, you're right. But we won't say any more right now because Zach thinks I might be spoiling. But at the very least, we've been near a seal and we've seen one broken inside of the eye of the world. But so the Amarlin seat is the watcher of the seals. Huh. Apparently doing a real bad job of that. Yeah, we're going to hear we more about that later. We're going to hear more about that in this episode. Also, the flame of Tarvalin. Yes. I did that just for you, Tarvalin. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate it. We've heard that one mentioned before. It's so, a symbol representing the female half of the power. It's one of the titles for the Amarlin seat is she is the flame of Tarvalin. So she embodies... What it is to be Aes Sedai. Yes. And then finally, the Amarlin seat. So those three terms... And also, in the introduction, then, the Amerlin seat gets out of her palanquin and greets Lord Agomar. Now, she is not old. But she's, she's got the ageless, agelessness. But she's not old in appearance. 
And Lord Algomar, he's more of a senior gentleman. Yeah, he's older than she is, at least in appearance. But she refers to him as my son, and he very smoothly calls her mother. What's that about? These are also titles. And as we have seen a little bit, and we'll come to see, the Aes Sedai system, and the Amulet seat specifically, is one of respect, but in a familiar way. Mm-hmm. That the Amulet seat is a mother to all. Yes. Okay, Rand has pushed his luck enough. He knows that now, so... He's got to get out of there. Yep, he rushes away, makes it to the stable, asks to have his horse saddled, and the groom humbly apologizes because he cannot obey. Nope. A command had arrived just moments before Rand got there, saying all the gates were closed, none can enter or leave the keep without permission of Lord Agomar. And Rand's like, what? Why would he be... Why would Lord Agomar want to keep me in? He's been letting me go at any time. It's obviously not to keep me in. You can just let me go. That, that's that's the way it is. And Rand questions it. Really, did did this order come from Lord Agomar? And Grim's like, of course, my lord. I mean, who else would give an order like that? And Rand's like, yeah, yeah. who else? Mm-hmm. Uno delivered it to me himself. Uh, so it had to have come from higher up. Like, Lord Agomar, the only guy you could, right? So that's the end of the chapter. Rand's attempt to get out has been thwarted. But chapter three starts up where there are other ways out. Mm -hmm. So he goes right around the corner from the stable to where there's a sally gate where just pedestrians can go out. It's not a place you'd ride out with a horse. And guarding the gate are a couple of Shinaran soldiers that Rand knows he's talked with before. Ragan and Masima. Now Ragan, nice guy. He's chit-chatted with him amiably... Masima, not so much. Always sour-faced. And, and it goes to the fact that Rand has encountered that most of the Shinarans have been very accepting of him. Mm-hmm. Just welcome him, see him as someone important, at least someone who's friendly and accepted because he came in with Lan, who they have high respect for, and with Moraine, and they have high respect for the Aes Sedai. But... And he's even dined with Lord Algomar, so he must be a good guy. But, but Masima is one of the few Shinarans who just see an outsider when they look at Rand. And I think we have been told enough to kind of infer some of why that may be. Not yet. But we're not going to That's go emphasized too into later it. Too. It has been mentioned, but not necessarily in this context. And not directly in context with Masima. We're gonna learn more about that later. There is more reason why Masima really can't stand Rand. And to an extent it's Kind of valid, but not really. Yeah. Anyways, Rand's like, so can I get out? And Ragan is like, well, I mean, it is uh, it is you, but he looks at Masima. Masima's a hard no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turns out they also got a, a message just minutes ago saying no one can leave without a written pass with permission. So again, Rand is trapped. And he's sure the Amerlin seat's going to be calling for him yep. soon. He's going to be grabbed. He's going to be caught. He's going to be gentled. It's it's terrible. He's going to die. I gotta get out of here. So he starts thinking, okay, there's more gates. I'm going to go check. And he does. He checks a few more. All of them are guarded. And he's all of them like, are like, nope. There's no point in checking them all because if all of these so far have been guarded, I'm sure they're all guarded. Okay, how about I get some rope and I climb over the wall? This is not an easy easy to scale wall. This is hey, a he's wall, done wall climbing before. This is a wall that is designed to like keep out a full siege of Trollocs. Might be easier to get out than getting in though. There's yeah, ways he, up to the wall. And then he would still have to go down. So loosely what he's basically thinking here is I'm gonna go to the top somewhere where it's not guarded, tie up this rope and belay myself down. Now there's the point you said where it's not guarded. 
And he finds, as he just quickly tries to explore this, there's not a single part no. of this wall that is not guarded. This is a fortress city. It <laughs> is guarded. In fact, he goes to one spot to look at the wall, and the guards see him, and they wave. Hey! You know, that's like, they're oh, friendly, man. but they're going to see. I cannot get out! And it would be really sus if you just decided, I'm going to start roping down the wall. People aren't going to be down with that, bud. Mm-hmm. So, what can he do? He stresses, he wanders, and he happens upon some friends. While he's wandering, though, there's a note here that the book makes mention of that's mm-hmm. important for us to highlight. Rand has a sense he's being watched. Yes. And he starts looking over his shoulder, trying to see who, where, what, and he can't see anyone. He can't find anybody watching him, but the, the feeling persists that he's being followed, that somebody is watching. And this is troubling him, and it's, it's amping up his anxiety. A bit of foreshadowing here. There are possibly multiple sources that this might be coming from. That is true. That is very true. He does eventually make his way down to the storerooms, way in the deep bowels of the keep, figuring nobody's going to come look in dusty old storerooms. Maybe I can hide down here. And you said he comes upon some friends. Yeah. He does. He finds a bunch of menial servants playing dice in a back dusty storeroom and he finds loyal the ogier watching them and loyal is like oh rand so nice to see you and also shares these guys won't let me play dice (laughs) it's just a humorous little thing i don't know why loyal likes the shinarans his encounter here has been, if you remember from the last book, when he showed up, they respected him. They recognized him. Not like Kyrian or Camelin, where people mistook him as a trollic and chased him across the city. They know Ogier here. But every time he tries to get in on the dice game, all they'll say is, glory to the builders, and they refuse to bet against him. <laughs> so their level of respect is we cannot compete against him. We can't take his money. That would just be wrong. He's rather put out that they won't let him play in any of their games. Feels a little like Rudolph. And when Loyal mentions this bit about the glory to the builders, light bulb goes off for Rand. Wait a second, that's right. Oh, gear, you guys build places. So you guys built this place. Do you, maybe you know a way I could get out. Are there tunnels, sewers? Is there some other way I could be getting out other than the obvious? And Loyal is like, oh, no, sorry, Rand. Remember, during the Trolloc Wars, what we built was was destroyed. destroyed. They rebuilt this place. Uh, I have no special knowledge of this current keep. Rand is like, oh, I'm doomed. (laughs) I've got to get out of here. And he just kind of slumps to the ground. And Loyal says, Matt, Perrin, I think something's wrong with Rand. I think he's sick. That's when we discover that they're there. They stand up out from the dice people and... It's a whole thing. Matt's like, okay, I'm going to leave the game. And people are, Matt, you can't leave while you're winning. <laughs> He's like, well, it's better than leaving when I'm losing. <laughs> Matt would do much better in Vegas. He knows when not to push his luck in this yeah. moment. He knows when to hold them and knows when to fold them. Knows when to walk away and when to run. You never count your But then he says to them, but don't worry, guys. I'll be back. You'll have a chance to win your money back later. Sure. <laughs> and the reaction from them shows how lucky he has yeah. been. Cause it's they're like, more, you'll have a chance to win more uh, money out of us. Yeah, the looks on their faces like, yeah, that's going to help. Hmm. They come to see what's wrong with Rand. And they notice how well he's dressed. Like, whoa, dude, nice 
studs. I got. Like, I've won. Matt's like, I've won some money. I could yeah. buy some clothes like this now too. And he's like, No, no, no. Don't worry. All your clothes are gone too. Wait, what? Moraine had all our stuff thrown away and new clothes replaced. You've got fancy stuff up in our room too now. Now, there is something that will be noted of and happened here, but it references something we didn't really touch on in the end of the second chapter. And that's that all these boys are relatively respected. Rand is getting a little bit nicer treatment than the others. And it goes back to his name. A lot of the various people around Faldara think that Rand actually is a lord. His name, Rand Althor, the Al prefix there, means something in the Borderlands. Lan's name is actually Al-Lan. Right. And in there, it means that he's a king. So even though Rand is like, no, no, it's just my name. It's just my name. People think he's royalty in some way, shape, or form from somewhere. And so while Matt and Perrin are important for being with the Aes Sedai, Rand is seen as an actual lord. Yes. And this will come back to bite him in a number of ways. <laughs> Definitely. So Rand is clearing up with the boys here now. I'm not sick. I just, I need to leave. Now, he can't explain why he needs to leave. Because if you remember, Loyal, Matt, Perrin, they do not know know. he can channel. They don't know this. That was kept from them, and he hasn't shared it. So he's freaking out, and he can't tell them why he's freaking out. So then he has, you know, he's like, well, I don't think it's going to go well for me with all these eyes to die around. And they're like, why? I mean, Moraine's been great. She's taken care of us. Yeah, absolutely. And Life has actually been pretty good here, partly because of our connection to Moiraine. They're not convinced about the Aes Sedai issue. That's not enough to get them to understand why he needs to get out of there. So then he tells them about feeling like he's being watched. He's being followed. Mm-hmm. There's something going on. I need to get away. Matt says, uh, you think it's a fade? And Loyal is like, no, 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 no. There's no fades here. They, they do everything they can to eliminate shadows. So you can't mm-hmm. have a fade. And then Rand tells him about the wind, what happened up there. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's some danger here. Matt responds, and this is this is where we get a sign that Matt's going to be a better Matt than we had in the first book. Yeah. Matt comes up with, well, if the gates are barred, how do we get out? The key word being we. we. He's clearly ready to leave with Rand. Now, he just talked about it's how, been going how nice great. it's been. He's making money gambling. And he's having a great time. But if Rand needs to go, Matt's there with him. What a guy. And that's the last thing Rand wants to see. Because Rand is focused on, I'm a channeler. I'm going to go insane and kill anyone around me. So I have to get my friends away away from me. Yes. So he instantly goes to plan B, which is perhaps one of the stupidest things he could do. But again, it's tied to he won't tell them the truth. Yep. He can't tell them, he feels, that he's a channeler. So clearly the only logical conclusion is to insult your friends. Yep. Horribly insult them, get them all offended so they won't want anything to do with it. It's great. Matt had a chance to do this when he was kind of insane and out of his mind, fever state in the last book, and now Rand's doing it of his own volition because he thinks it's a good idea. And it plays right into what you already commented on, how Shinarans have been treating him like a lord, and so now he starts acting all lordly on them and why in the world would i want you around you guys have just been clingy as it is and no no way you think you're better than us matt gets pretty ticked off about that and so fine my lord (laughs) if you want to be alone you can be alone perrin let's bounce so they leave and loyal's like 
before they leave, guys, you know, if, even if you separate, you know, you're all Taviran and, and the pattern's going to still weave you. And Matt's like, enough with the Taviran garbage. I don't want to hear that either. And that's when they leave. And Loyal's like, oh, I didn't mean to offend. Rand, do you think? And Rand goes all insulty on Loyal too. Because mm-hmm. he's like, everyone needs to be away from him. So he drives Loyal off. He looks like a, I have this image of Loyal being like a, a, a puppy that was yelled at and now is droopy eared, but it's probably droopy eyebrowed. Yeah, we really get a <laughs> poor guy, a fun description into the characters of these people through this confrontation that Rand is tr- doing his best to push his friends away because he cares. Mm-hmm. Matt is immediately loyal, but he takes offense to things and gets kind of huffy about it. And Perrin, while being relatively quiet and stoic, especially with Rand's concerns about Aes Sedai, looks understanding as we look into his yellow golden eyes. Loyal then being the the lab, who <laughs> the lab comes nice. up and keeps doing good his dog. thing and is sharing, but then doesn't know when to stop being a good boy and it gets kind of belittled for it. And poor guy. So Rand gets what he wants. Everyone's left. And now Rand is going to go search through the storerooms more to find a good place to hide. And what he does is he finds places where, okay, I could hide here, but I can picture people searching for me, finding me. Mm-hmm. And if he finds any place where, okay, maybe they won't find me, then he can picture whoever's following him finding him. And he just can't find anywhere where he feels at peace, hiding. While he's still trying to search, he comes upon Egwene searching the storerooms. I believe they, like, run into each other. Oh, no, he sees her first. Okay. But she doesn't see him, and he does startle her. And she's like, yeah, you know. But it turns out she was looking for him because she knows he can channel. Mm-hmm. She heard from Matt and Perrin what he had done to them, and she put two and two together. He's trying to drive everyone away so that he doesn't hurt anyone, and he's not going to get away with that. <laughs> okay, you think you need to hide? Fine. But I know what's going on here, and you can't just drive us all away. And Rand insults her and tries to march away again, drive her off, and she tackles him. She proves which is she a is great stubborn. turnaround. Last book, he tackled her while trying to save her. Right? She's doing the same thing. Tackling You're doing him to something stupid. I'm not going to let you. And she tackles him to the ground. And then she does her spiel, bullying him for his own good, and says, "You're going to come with me because if you try to hide here, this is the first place they'll look for you. You're being stupid." So she says, I have a place we can hide you. We're going to put you in the dungeons. I'm sorry, what? He's like, you're going to put me in a cell? No, 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 no. She explains, no, there's really nobody down in the dungeons except... A couple guards and and, Pat and Fane. You know, a couple petty criminals. Uh, No big deal. There's plenty of places down there you could hide. Nobody really goes down there. So it'd be great. And I know this because I've been down there to visit Pat and Fane. Great, great. Rand's like, what the heck? He is an evil dark friend. Moraine said he was the most despicable and dark dark friend she's ever encountered. And you've been visiting him? And he actually feels bad now when he thinks, okay, I've been avoiding everybody. Matt and Perrin have been busy doing whatever boys do, gambling and stuff. Nobody has paid any attention to Egwene. She's been so lonely, she had to visit the peddler? And that's kind of (laughs) true. 
<laughs> well, it's she says she'd been going to visit him because they talk about the two rivers. You know, it's kind of true, but I think to an extent, Egwene shows a kindness here that she's the only one who thought to go and just talk with him. And she says, since he's been here in prison now, he's kind of more like the normal peddler we used to know. We've been having good conversations and he's made me laugh and told about places he's traveled. It's just been very amiable. You keep saying amiable. Isn't it amiable? No, it is amiable. Really? Might be pronounced both ways. Weird. Feel free to look that one up. We'll get there. So Rand says, uh, you know, okay, I, I didn't really think it's a good idea for you to be visiting Pat and Fane, but obviously Moraine doesn't feel like it's too dangerous for you to be there. I guess it's fine. And then Egwene's like, well... She hasn't exactly told Moraine. I mean, I didn't ask if I could, but Better he's locked to up, ask... you know? Better to ask forgiveness than permission. Pretty much. That's what she's going with. So Egwene leads Rand to the dungeon. This will be the place to hide you. They get to get into the dungeons. She raps on the door and the guards, they know her. She's been there to visit numerous times and they let them in and they're rather insulting. Rand yeah. is kind of shocked. Even Masima hasn't exactly been rude. He just doesn't, he's unyielding. He's, he's not nice. Right. These are, these guys are rude. Yeah. Th- he's it's... never seen a rude Shinarin. Yeah. So, ooh. Once they are let through into the cells, and they're locked into the cell area, the hallway to the cells. Yeah. They're locked in there. Rand's like, so do you think they'll let us out? (laughs) I mean, they were really nasty guys. And Egwene explains, they will. It's going to be fine. But they've been getting meaner. Yeah, every time. I mean, when I first started visiting, they would joke with me. It was very pleasant, very amiable. But... As we see with the uh, Stanford prison experiment, when you're in charge of prisoners, it often becomes a thing that kind of messes with your psyche as well and makes you darker and harsher. And maybe that's what's happening here. So Zach is dropping university learned knowledge on you all. No, actually, I learned that back in (laughs) high school at some point. Maybe it was AP Psych. I don't know. Have you never heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment? I don't know. It doesn't ring a bell, but that sounds right. So I probably learned something about that once upon a time. It's a really interesting thing. Basically, there were a whole bunch of people. Some got put in as fake prisoners, some fake prison guards, and it was supposed to be a week long. It had to get stopped after like three days because the prison guards were being so harsh and it was so bad. And it's one of the highlights of nowadays unethical experiments. So the Discord points out here, they're only being mean from just normal psychology. Is that what you're saying? I mean... Good point, DT. Probably mm-hmm. not. But as far as Egwene knows, she assumes that might be the case. Okay, I like that. I like that. It's just, you know, they're down here. It's dark. They're stuck watching prisoners and it's wearing on them. So mm-hmm. as far as they know, that would be true. She kind of comments. She would not like having to work here herself. As far as we know... There might be more to it, but we won't give too much away. Hint. We'll just say hint, hint. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it is logical that it could just be explained that way. And that's how she sees it. Then they walk on through the cells. They pass two prisoners who are just there for stupid things who she says, yeah, they've also been getting kind of meaner. They were just hanging out in the cells now, but now they're rude to them. They're staring at them. They curse at them. It's like, I kind of have in my head this image from Silence of the Lambs walking through as the various prisoners are hurling insults or coming up to the bars. And it's, it's a whole mess. 
mm. of almost terror for someone walking through. And they get down to the very end of the hall, and there's Pat and Fane. Egwene had described how he's gotten very pleasant, and they have nice conversations, but that is not the Fane that Rand encounters here. <laughs> no, we see something totally different. It was very disturbing. Fane acts quite unhinged. He tells Rand, you can't hide from me. And he refers to himself as Mordeth. Yeah. Okay. Where have we heard that I name? I believe we have heard that name Oh, before. yes, we've heard that name. Am I supposed to say where? Yes, uh, yes. This is not a spoiler because they're from the last book. No, no. We, we heard that name in Shadar Logoth. They met Mordeth. It wasn't Fane. The creepy guy without a shadow. In the treasure room. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, Rand is getting a total freak out moment. This is not going to work. No. I am not hiding here with him. No. In this, this, anywhere near this area. And truth, truth be told, <laughs> if Egwene's thought process of this was what it was going to be, how she had envisioned it, yes. it would have worked. But, yeah, but as this is, this, isn't no, working. this is not the place. So then she says, okay, there's one other place I had thought of, and it's going to be harder to get you there. So I figured let's try this. But yeah, this won't work. I'm with you. So let's take you to the women's apartments. You can hide in my room. And he's like, what? <laughs> it's like, really? Because no man is allowed in the women's apartments without direct invitation of a woman. Okay, so it's a very private area. Only the women can be there. No one's going to go searching for Rand in the women's apartments. That being said, this is a very Merry and Pippin explaining to Treebeard moment. The closer you are to danger, the further you are from harm. The, he, you're yeah, the literally walking into the place with the Aes Sedai, <laughs> and people who, if anyone sees you, they will mention it. The word will get around. You're going to be right there, but you're just hoping it's so far unimaginable that you would hide there that... That's right. That You'll it be should safe. Work. It should work. And she, and so when he hesitates, she's like, well, okay, if you want to stay here instead. Oh, nope, nope, you're right. <laughs> All right, let's try the woman's place, which is good because as they're walking away, then they hear Fane's laughing whisper trickling down <laughs> the hall. The battle's never over, Althor. More death knows. It's like, oh, creepy. <laughs> All it's right. creepy. End of chapter three. We move to chapter four. Let's go. This is called Summoned. And we have a total different POV now. <gasps> we move to Moraine. Moraine is alone in her rooms in the women's apartments. So this is where, of course, we know Rand and Egwene are heading. But we're jumping right there. Yep. And she appears nervous. We've not seen a nervous Moraine. But she's waiting for her summons to speak with the Amerlin seat. She notes that in this, that she can handle this. She can still show calm and coolness because she learned such skills to not show your true emotions growing up in the royal palace of Kyrian. Now, I don't think we'd heard anything about that before, had we? We have. Did we? Was that dropped during the Eye of the World? I believe it was mentioned in association with the Aeol. Okay. So she's there. She's dressed in her finest. It talks about that she has her shawl on we hear a little bit about Aes Sedai and their shawls now the shawl shows what Aja you are so it's blue fringe is blue she is blue Aja but that they don't usually wear their shawls except for formal occasions specifically usually in mm -hmm. the white tower mm -hmm. but being summoned to appear before the Amerlin seat is a formal occasion and she just did happen to have her shawl with her by great luck I mean, I feel like it's one of those things that even if you don't wear it, you keep it with you pretty much always in your bags. You don't leave without it. Like an American Express card. What's in your wallet? 
that's not American Express. Oh, no, what is that? That's Visa, isn't it? No, that's um Capital One. There we go. That's Capital. I have a Capital One card. Do you? Yep. I don't. <laughs> so she's waiting and boom, boom, boom. There's a knock on her door. And she notes, okay, that's not how people normally knock on my door. That is not respectful or no. And then boom, 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 before she can get to it, another one. She goes to her door, she opens it, and as she opens it, there's someone out there about to pound again. There's two eyes to die. One is Anaya, a blue Aja. Awesome. Who looks happy to see her. Yeah. And they're both blue Aja and clearly, you know, kind of on the same page in some ways, apparently. The other, Leandrin, red Aja. Great. And doesn't appear happy to see her. It's all business. I mean, she was the one knocking. Yes. Pounding. Very impatient. And they state, you've been summoned to the Amerlin seat. Just a quick word of reference. Any and all Aes Sedai that get mentioned will probably be back. So just know that they're names to remember. That's actually not true. And in particular, in this group that we're going to meet here, there's a couple that most never of hear them, from again. Most of them come back. Most of them, but not all. I want to say all of them at great. least once. There's one that's not even named. Just I, mentioned. I think all the ones that are named come back at least once, but we'll get there. So, okay, we need to go to where we've been summoned. All right, let's go. And Leandrin says, uh, we aren't able to come into your room. What are you hiding? Basically pointing out, you've warded this room. No one can come in. What are you hiding from sisters? Which is how they refer to themselves as Aes Sedai. We know that now. Sisters. And yeah. she doesn't say that she's not hiding from them. Nope. She gives a very Aes Sedai answer. She says that it's been warded against everyone. I was the only Aes Sedai here before, so there was no need to differentiate that it was only non-Aes Sedai that were warded against, and that's just the way it is. And there's no other real answer, and there's no mention of changing it. Off they go. Leandrin is left still clearly thinking she's hiding something, but fine. Okay, we're leaving. Leandrin's a snoop. <laughs> she is. They have a conversation then as they're walking to the Emerlin Seat's apartments. We learn a few things. One, yep. Moraine has been gone from the tower, the White Tower, for quite some time. There have been three more false dragons that have appeared. Now. Since Loghain. Right. Three new ones. Saldeia, Murindi, and Tyr. Now, only the one in Saldeia can channel, apparently. And we're going to need to do something about that. Apparently, the people in Tyr and Murindi have already dealt with the dragons that popped up there. Mm -hmm. The riots that were happening in Camelin have settled down. But people are still blaming Queen Morgays and her association with Tarvalin. There's a lot of social everything unrest. Everything that's wrong. Yeah. Um, however, go ahead. Elaine and Gawain did make their trip to the White Tower and are there training. Yes, that as was, was mentioned previously. The Lady Elaine was born with the spark, so she needed to go train no matter what. She really did. Hmm. But turns out she's got a lot of power. Yeah. There's a whole tradition with the daughter heir of Andor coming in training at the White Tower, and then she'll go back and be queen or whatever. And because of all the social unrest, people were concerned, maybe it wouldn't happen this time. And Moraine's like, no, no, no. She was born with a spark. She will be one of the most powerful channelers in like 300 years or something. If she didn't come, she would have issues and possibly die. Yes. She needed to come. Right. The children of the light are making mischief. Great. They actually followed the group going to Tarvalin. Were a real nuisance and even went as far as the bridges into the city itself. They didn't enter the city, but no. they're just being a pain. 
We learn the great hunt for the horn has been officially called an alien. Hey, I wonder where that horn is. Oh, oh right. <laughs> They're saying the last battle is coming and the horn of Valir must be found before it. And truthfully, the large number of dragons that keep popping up, false dragons though they may be, seems indicative that it may be approaching. Mm -hmm. We get another mention of the sea folk here. Mm -hmm. The sea folk are agitated. They're saying they're Kormor, a prophecy that says their chosen one is coming. And they're not the only peoples that we don't really see often yet, at least, that are also stirring. Yes, we have word that the Aiel are stirring again. Not that, they've left, they... not that they've crossed the spine of the world. They're no. still over in their land, but there's something going on. But the last time they were agitated, they did cross the spine of the world. It was about 20 years ago, and there was a massive war. It was bad. The last thing, there are rumors of fighting on Almuth Plain and perhaps Toman Head. But we don't hear anything more about that. Those are mentioned, I think as Anaya says... Wow, you really are stretching for rumors now. That's not confirmed. It's just a rumor. And if you look at the map, again, that's clear across the continent from where they are. So just rumors. It's not quite the furthest you could be because theoretically you could go further south. But it's about as far close, west yeah. as you can go. And we're at the far northeast. Now they come upon the Lady Amalisa at this point. Again, the sister to Lord Agomar. And there's a little bit of small chat that takes place. She is, you know, the most important woman in the keep. So you got to take a moment to stop and, and talk in passing. Mm -hmm. While they're talking, Moraine catches out of the corner of her eye, Egwene moving with a man in like worker clothes, carrying something for her. But she's like, uh -huh, I see what you're doing. She recognizes that's Rand. Egwene is sneaking Rand into the apartments while Rain sees it. And doesn't say anything. Her thought is awesome. She specifically thinks pretty much, well done, girl. <laughs> and, you know, she has the thought, if you have this much initiative and with itness, you might end up a Merlin seat yourself someday. So turning back to the conversation, Maureen comes back in. Leandrin started to talk with Emilisa nicely. Which makes no sense to Moiraine. No, Leandrin's Leandrin, a harsh, hard person. She, she does not make friends. The few friends she has are all Red Aja. Why is she being pleasant to the Lady Amalisa? She even takes up her offer to come visit with her in the garden sometime. Yeah, it's oh, like... Oh, gonna have to watch this. This is one of those like telltale game moments. Uh, Moraine will remember that. Yes. Exactly. And you all should too. Finally, they arrive at the apartments of the Amerlin seat. A number of other Aes Sedai are there, and they're mentioned. We Name drops. Varen Mathwin and Seraphel of the Brown, mm -hmm. which we learn is an Aja dedicated to seeking knowledge. That's really all they care about. They want to learn stuff. They're my people. They're book people. They do great on CSI New Orleans. Go learn stuff. That's what they hear <laughs> all the time. That's right. If you watch the Sorry. show, you get that. Okay, uh, learn go back stuff, a people. Go back a sec. You mean NCIS? New Orleans? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. CSI's been off for yeah, over a Yeah, you watched through all those. I wow. was there with you, but... NCIS New Orleans, yes. <laughs> and not New Orleans, people. Okay, we lived there. It's New Orleans. New Orleans. Or New Orleans, that's right. <laughs> okay, a yellow Aja sister is there that Moiraine doesn't know, so we get no name. This is the one I was referencing. There's a... 
There's an unnamed person. But the significance of that character is to point out that Moiraine has been gone from the White Tower long enough that there's people there now who are sisters that she's never met. She doesn't know these people. And we don't, at this point, really know quite what the scale of the White Tower is. No. How many people? There's a fair chance she wouldn't have known everyone there anyways. Possibly. And then Carlinia of the White Aja and Alana Masfani of the Green. Those are all named. Now, Moraine knows there were more eyes to die mm-hmm. that came. Where are the others? I mean, not that they all needed to be here when she shows up, but she is curious. Hmm. But doesn't have much time to ponder because the inner door of the apartments open up and Liana, the keeper of the Chronicles, steps out. It blew my mind when I learned that it was Liana, not Leanne. I know, I know. I totally said Leanne for years. The entire time I read all of it, it's Leanne. Nope. I only learned Liana because of Talk Around Riyadh, the Wheel of Time showcast podcast. If you guys haven't listened to that show, highly recommend it. Very entertaining, but all about focusing on Amazon's upcoming TV show on the Wheel of Time. But they also talk about other stuff. And one of the things that came up was talking about that character's name. And then I went back, I looked in the books, and, and it yeah, does say it's yeah, no, Liana. It, it says that, but it's spelled L-E-A-N-E. I know. What? It's Leanne. Come on. Although, even with the pronunciation in the glossary, people argue over, okay, how do you pronounce what that says? Because some are saying Liane. <laughs> Liane? I was like, ah. Oh. And I, I know DT pointed out that it was an interview with the actress, and she pronounced it more like Liane, I think, is what I heard. I mean, it's spelled what? in pronunciation guide with an E-H, so it's an E. Yeah. So I go with Liana. Liana. Liana or Liana. It's more of an on in the uh, glossary. A-H-N. So Liana. But totally, yeah. All along, I was just... Leanne. And didn't we know a Leanne? Didn't you have a classmate, Leanne, spelt yeah. exactly this way? Yeah. yeah. One of my uh, closest childhood friends. Back in elementary school. Yeah. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to say... Hers had two ends. Liana. And she is the keeper of the Chronicles. What is... They don't explain much here. I want you to do it anyways. This is a fine time. Who the keeper Tell of them Chronicles what the keeper is? of the Chronicles is. What does that um, mean in real basic? It is to quote or reference Hamilton. It is what Hamilton was to George Washington. It is the right-hand man, the person who is both a glorified secretary and the second highest authority in the tower. If you need to talk to the Omerlin, you have to go through the Keeper of Chronicles. Any and all information that gets to the Amarlin about the world is kind of filtered by this individual. The Amarlin is the most important and makes the most decisions. The Keeper of Chronicles is a necessary position to filter through to. Yes. Very well done. Thank you, Zach. Liana quickly brings Moraine into the room where the Amarlin seat is sitting at work. And what she has on the table in front of her is a flattened cube that Moraine brought back from the Blight. It's the chest. Like, uh, last I knew, she's thinking, that was locked safely away in Lord Agomar's storeroom. Ah, what is it doing here? Yeah. So now we do meet Swan Sanche, the Amarlin seat. She and Moiraine share some brief pleasantries. Zach, what do we hear here? What do we know quickly about Swan Sanche? We're going to learn a lot more, but one of the main things we're going to hear and learn is that she originally was a simple fisherman's daughter uh, Mm -hmm. from Tyr. Robert Jordan will not ever let us forget that. Oh, goodness, no. But she's also been... Bloody fish guts. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) She's been the Amarlin for about 10 years, and the stole that she wears... 
while Moraine's was blue fringed, Leandrin's would have been red, Varen's brown, these various colors. Swan's is... And different. They have shawls. Yes. She has a stole. Shawls versus stoles. It's a little different. And we didn't talk about it. Liana had a stole as well. But hers mm-hmm. was just a simple blue stole, thin. And the stole that the Keeper of the Chronicles wears is the color of the Aja she was raised from. Now as the Keeper of the Chronicles, she doesn't belong to an Aja. Not really, but, but it still has a reference to it. still reminiscent of what Whereas she came from. Swan's, as the Amarlin is reminiscent of all of the Ajas. Suan, therefore, has a seven-striped, seven-colored. It's a stole of many colors. How she loves her lovely stole of many colors. <laughs> nice. Green and red and yellow. And... Okay. Orange and blue. That always ends with blue. The Amerlin is not belonging to any Aja anymore. That is very clear. Emphasized. Okay, so she is all Aja. The last thing we really hear about Swan is she's harsh to an extent. Very intimidating character. Yeah. She's, I believe, relatively short of stature Mm -hmm. and yet looks down at everyone. (laughs) In a way. Their quick conversation here reveals a few points that we want to know about. The Aes Sedai used the one power to make their ships sail up the river to get here to Faldara as fast as possible. So much so they probably flooded some of the communities that passed. That feels like A, cheating, and B, doing harm to the, all those villages. It's yeah. true, but they had that sense of urgency. They needed to get here as quick as possible. We don't know why yet, but that's coming. We also hear that Elida came with Elaine to the White Tower. Elaine, we mentioned already, has great potential. Elida and her fellow Red Sisters are working that for all they oh, can. Yeah. They're basically saying Elida found someone who's probably going to be the greatest Aes Sedai yeah. we've seen in a thousand years. Which, let's just be real here, kind of BS. Because one, <laughs> Elaine is noted she's not probably not going to go Red. I mean, who knows, but probably not. Two... She's literally the daughter heir of Andor. Elida or not, Elaine would have come to the tower. Yeah, but she's working it. She's taking the credit, and the red are riding high right now. Moiraine mentions, well, I found two young women from the two rivers who also have great potential. Egwene will be as powerful as Elaine. And Nynaeve, she's got a block. She's a wilder. But once she breaks through that yeah, block... When she figures out man, her stuff and gets in control... Her power will be a bonfire. And Elaine and Egwene, they'll look like their power potential is candles next to so, what Nynaeve can do. Clearly, if Nynaeve unlocks her full potential, will be one of the most powerful Aes Sedai ever? Yeah, potentially. And she says, and these two? Yeah, no chance they're going red. Uh-uh. <laughs> Basically, they like boys. <laughs> they're frustrated, <laughs> exasperated, but they still like them. Yes. The number of girls being found who could be trained to channel the one power has been dwindling. Yes. So it's significant to find three new ones. I mean, Elaine, who, you know, was coming anyways, as you said, but then two other new ones that are very powerful. This is the first we've heard about the fact the White Tower is very sparsely populated now, that their numbers have been growing less and less over the years. But Elida, we hear, also came to the White Tower, not just to ride Elaine's coattails and take some credit, but to report that Moraine was meddling with a young man who she saw in Camelin, who is Taviran and dangerous. She spirited this young man off before Elida could find him again. Elida's been telling all the other Aes Sedai about this, and that this man is more dangerous than any since Arthur Hawkwing, and as she has the foretelling ability, which we learned about in the Eye of the World, mm-hmm. 
her words carry some weight. If she's saying, okay, this is a very powerful, dangerous man, and Moiraine is doing things with him, and not telling us, this is bad. There's rumors, there's issues, and this has a lot to do with why they're here now in Faldara. We'll get to that in a moment here in the notes, but there's just a little additional inconsequential conversation. But the gist of it is that the Merlin seat, her position, her influence is being hurt right now. It's not as strong yeah. as it was. She has to be so careful now about what she's saying. It is at least in part a political office that is not necessarily a firm, solid forever Yeah, thing. you're not really a dictator. No. You, you have the power that you have been given, but you have to balance with all the other powers that actually do exist. And if you're not careful, you end up being more of a puppet to the other powers. It could happen. At this point, Swan asks Liana to leave the room so that she can speak with Moraine alone. Liana shows a little bit of surprise here, and we learn that's not normal. The Avalon doesn't talk to people alone. Not usually. It's very rare. The Keeper, at least, is usually present for all of this stuff. Especially, why would she do the honor of talking alone to someone who, really, she should be chastising? Yeah, back from what Elida's been saying, you know, Moraine should be in trouble. So, what? But, okay, Liana, loyal servant, she leaves. And Swan sets an eavesdropping ward, which should be completely unnecessary. Nobody Who should would dare be. to eavesdrop on the Emerlin seat, but uh, it doesn't matter. She's putting that there. And then they hug it out. Hey! Apparently they're old friends and it's great <laughs> for a moment. They can let down the facade of being all formalized and stuff. They get to just be themselves. That's the end of chapter four. Well, but there's two critical paragraphs of information there. Yeah. That's very key that I thought it might be worthwhile to just repeat. All right. So I thought you could read one and I'll read the other. You want the first or the second? I'll take the first. Okay. So they've been talking about what it means to be an Aes Sedai and, and you know, it has been hard and that they have to put on a pretense. They can't be themselves and genuine. And Moraine says, well, we are Aes Sedai Swan. We have our duty. Even if you and I had not been born to channel, would you give it up for a home and a husband? Even a prince? I do not believe it. That is a village goodwife's dream. Not even the greens go so far. And Swan, the Amelin, her response follows, No, I would not give it up. Most of the time, no. But there have been times I envied that village goodwife, and at this moment I almost do. Moraine, if anyone, even Liana, discovers what we plan, we will both be stilled. And I can't say they would be wrong to do it. Ooh. So an ominous note to end the chapter. Ba, the ba, two of ba. them have something planned, something that the rest of the I said I can't know about. Whoa, what? Okay, we jump right to chapter five, which is going to be the last chapter for today. And chapter five, the shadow in Shinar, begins with a focus on that word that was just used, stilled. We've loosely heard about some of this before, but mostly in a different context. I don't remember stilled. We learned about burned out. We've learned about burned out. And where I say is we've learned about gentling. Yes. We learned that stilled is basically the word for the doing it to a woman, separating her from the yep. power. If you remove a woman's ability to channel forcefully, you do that to her. You have stilled her. It is very rare that it's ever been done to an Aes Sedai. In fact, so rare that novices learning to be Aes Sedai have to memorize all the women that it's been done to. And basically, they memorize why it was done to them. Mm -hmm. 
It's a punishment that is done only for the most extreme of circumstances. And Swan just said, if they find out what we've been planning, we'll likely be stilled. Usually it's for serious high crimes, treason, sedition, things like that. High crimes and misdemeanors, yes. So the conversation turns to the fact that Moiraine and Swan are aware of prophecies that have to be fulfilled. And they've been working towards this for the past 20 years, ever since they were raised to Aes Sedai. But at the same time, what they've been working towards could be seen by the rest of the Aes Sedai as a betrayal of everything Aes Sedai stand for. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not being told everything. Not yet, at least. Right. There will be more learned in the books to come. And some of this you won't necessarily learn until a book that is optional. Yes, the prequel book. If discovered, though, they agree, Moiraine would likely be stilled. Swan would be stripped of her stole as the Merlin seat. She would also be stilled. And when that's been done before, which has only been done twice, you don't get then just let off easy. The two former Aes Sedai who were stripped of the stole and stilled were then made servants in the White Tower for the rest of their days so that they were an example and could not be looked on with pity or people wanting to bring them back or something. No, it's Granted, like, the rest of their days weren't necessarily that long. No, because just like with Gentling, they lose the will still, to live. you lose your will to live. It's not good. Now, as we talk about the politics of the White Tower, the two who have been removed from being Merlin seat were red, Aja, before they were raised to the Merlin seat. And when they were removed, they were replaced by blue Aja people who became the new Merlin seat. The red have never forgotten. That. You know, Aes Sedai are kind of a little bit petty with grudges. Some of it reminds me of Congress. Uh, we don't want to go political, but there's some of but, that I mean, going on. There's a on, lot of politics. Man. I mean, it's not necessarily mirroring any specific politics from our world, but the White Tower is a very political beast. It is. And it is. we can't really talk about the inner workings of it unless we acknowledge that part of it. So after this talk has gone on a bit of what could happen now, Moraine kind of loses her temper. Yeah. What is Suan saying? That she wishes they would give up after these 20 years of effort? But no, that's not what Swan is saying. And actually now Swan gets angry and says, While Moraine has been off gallivanting all over the world, trying to live out their plan and, in essence, find Rand. Okay. Swan's been stuck in the tower having to navigate all this mm -hmm. politics. And a lot of the trouble she's had to navigate has been because of news of what Moraine's been doing out there. Yeah. And Moraine has never had to pay, take the lumps for any of it. It's well, always been back to Swan. Let's be real here. Swan is a little bit bitching and moaning. She is. But she is. She's tired of all She's that. also kind of justified to do it. In a heartbeat, she would have been out there doing what Moraine's been doing. She's not saying Moraine was doing stuff wrong. She'd rather be doing it. Let just, Moraine be the Merlin She seat. got the raw end of that yes. adventure deal. Yes. Uh, but it does get down to a, a sticking point that Swan has here now. She says, okay, so we had a plan, okay? You were supposed to find the boy who was the Dragon Reborn and then bring him back to Tar Valen, where we would keep him safe and we would guide him and you didn't do it. You sent me a message that you found him that you had him, and then you were taking him to Faldara. Practically the blight on Sheogul's doorstep. Are you friggin' nuts? And that's why she's here now, and that's why she's ticked. You're blowing up the whole plan, and you're not telling me what you're doing. And, you know, let's just be real here. She's got a point. <laughs> she's got a point, but Moraine is Moraine. 
she doesn't really back down from anything. She had to do what she had to do. She says, you know, they're Taviran. Rand is Taviran, stronger than Arter Hawkwing ever was. He's a massively strong Taviran. The wheel weaves, man. The pattern forced our plans. We had to get up here. I couldn't bring him back like intended. And and that's something we did not anticipate when and we were working our plan. Speaking of things they didn't anticipate, the box. So Swan opens up the box, pulls out the Horn of Valir. Well. <sighs> and they do know prophecy. Again, we've mentioned prophecy. The Horn of Valir is necessary, and it is a sign that the last battle is coming. Swan's like, so do we have so little time, really? We already have the horn? Well, we've got no idea how long. But Moraine points out something you mentioned earlier. There's been more and more false dragons showing up, too. That is also a sign. The pattern demands the dragon. And so false dragons will keep popping up until the true dragon is proclaimed. And more importantly, proclaims himself. Then Moraine shares another sign that the last battle is approaching, which we hear named and now is Tarman Gaiden. First time I think we hear that used as another word, old language, old time word for the last battle. I believe at the beginning of this book in the prologue, it was referenced with a different word as well. Okay. That I I rather enjoyed because it showed the other side's perspective. Mm. They just called it the day Uh with a capital D. It was really fun. So she pulls out that broken Quendiar seal that we saw at the end of the last book. Now, again, you said earlier, one of the titles for the Amerlin seat is the Watcher of the Seals. Here we learn, hey, a secret. Yes, I'm the Watcher of the Seals, and we have not known where any of the seals were for the last 2,000 years. Not they since disappeared the Trolloc during Wars. the Trolloc Wars. Yeah. And hey, here one is, and it's broken. That's not good. Swan shares that she saw Rand when he was peeking that in the little courtyard peek she earlier. Saw. Mm-hmm. Now, she probably wouldn't have noticed him, except... She has a, the talent, capital T, for seeing Taviran. And she saw him, and he was blazing like the freaking sun. It totally shocked her and honestly terrified her. She'd never seen anything like that. He is so strong as Taviran. And then she says, so he is the one we've been searching for for 20 years? And Moraine answers, yup. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> she doesn't she, say yup, but yeah. That's nah, it. She, He is the one. She asks, he is the one. Moraine goes, he is. And Swan really doesn't want it to be true. So she's kind of like, are we certain he, he can channel? And, yep, uh, he can. We don't get a half-truth. We get straight up, he can. Rand Althor will stand before the world as the dragon reborn. Moraine just says it. At the very least, she firmly believes that. Yep. Now, she notes her plan on how to handle him. And here she explains a little bit about that Two Rivers psychology. They are so stubborn. I cannot tell him what to do. It's very clear. If I tell him to go left, he's going to go right. Put any pressure on him and he will bolt in any direction except for the one you want. He suspects I'm going to try to manipulate him so I can do nothing that looks like manipulating him. So here's my plan. We need him to be recognized as the Dragon Reborn. So I'm going to convince his friends, Matt and Perrin, who, by the way, are also Taviran. Not, not as strong, but right? still really strong. I'm going to convince them to take the Horn of Valir to Ilian, to be part of the party that takes that down there, because it needs to go there. And they want to see a bit of the world. So, hey, would you do this on our behalf? And when Rand hears that... He'll go with his friends to get away from Aes Sedai. I'm not going to go with them. I can't do that. I have to put some separation here. So I'm going to send them off. And with plenty of soldiers, I've arranged, you know, Loragomar to send a Shannaran contingent with them. They'll Mm -hmm. be safe. 
But Rand, I bet, will jump at the chance to get away from Aes Sedai, but still be with his friends for longer. And then when they get there, I will be there. I will find a way to get down to Ilion and be there when they arrive and facilitate that Rand is the one to present the horn. And when he presents to the government it, in Ilion. Ilion will have no choice but to acknowledge. Here's the man who has the horn of Valir, it is found, and he can channel. He is the dragon reborn. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. He'll step out into the light and be proclaimed and perfect. And he'll have a whole country and army behind him from day mm-hmm. one. And can't everything imagine... else will start to fall in line. I can't imagine anything going wrong with that plan. At this point, they wrap up the conversation because they've been in this soundproof box for too long now and everybody's going to be talking. It's us. We are almost to the end of the chapter, but here it does something a little unusual. It's going to jump to a couple different point of views for just a moment to throw us a few key things. So Mm -hmm. we jump clear across the continent to Jeffrem Bornhald. Hey, buddy. Yeah, we haven't seen him in a while. He's leading 2,000 Children of the Light, along with supply wagons, all the usual camp followers, through the Terabon wilderness. So welcome to Terabon. Okay. He's been given orders by the head guy of the Children of the Light, the Lord Captain Commander Pedrin Nile, to head out to Terabon and to stay unseen. He's supposed to get this massive group out there and not be noticed. And he he has orders. If you are seen, such tongues must be stilled. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, fancy words of if anybody sees you, you got to kill him. He doesn't want to kill people. And we we learned this when we first met Jeffrem Bornhold. He's He's a good guy. He actually is probably... One of the better children of the light. He has morals. Not all white cloaks are bad. He has no issues with killing dark friends. But he definitely wants to know someone's a dark friend before he kills them. So he doesn't want to just kill somebody because they happen to see him and be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So he has worked very hard and has gotten the whole group out here unseen. He was given very mysterious orders. He's going to meet somebody out here at another town in Terabon and he'll get more orders. And he doesn't know anything else. He asks questions, and Niles, you don't need to know anything else. Just go, and you'll be met, and you'll be told the rest. Okay, that's kind of freaky and mysterious. Yeah, it's not ideal. He gets out here, and his scouts come back at this point with some other children of the light that they have found. Woo! These have... The Red Crook. Red Shepherd Crooks on those golden sunbirds on their uniforms. Where did we see that? It was on the guy at the Dark Friend Social. Boars had that. Now, we're not saying this is Boars, but we learn here now that this is a... Boars is wearing the same uniform mm-hmm. these guys were. And now we learn these are... We get the name? Yeah. Questioners. Mm-hmm. Although that's the pejorative term for them. They Fine. are. They call themselves the official name, the Hand of the Light. They are the ones who will work with accused dark friends mm-hmm. to find the truth. And they question them. We had a reference to them way back when Perrin was captured mm-hmm. by Jeffrem, saying that they were going to take him back to be put to the question. Yes. That would have been the questioner's jobs. No one's ready for the Spanish Inquisition. That's these guys. Isn't it? No one expects. <sighs> no, you're Monty Python. Come on. You're probably right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. This is them. We get very clearly from Jeffrem's tone. He doesn't like these guys. <laughs> no. I mean, Partly, if Jeffrem's an honest yeah. um, white cloak, at least the general feel about the hand of the light is that they're extremists. Before they question people, they've already decided they know the answers. Yeah. It's That's not an problem. innocent until proven guilty. It's a guilty until killed. Mm-hmm. He's greeted by the head of this contingent, Einor Saren. 
He's the second in command to Jacob Carradine, who's the commander of the Hand of the Light out here in Terabon. Mm-hmm. He directs them to follow him to the village ahead. No worries about being seen now. It has been pacified. pacified. And yeah, Jeffram's like, okay, so are the bodies piled in the center of town or have they been thrown on the river? Ah, it's a very poor opinion of these guys. Yeah. But Saren makes it very clear, this is not a request. This is a command. I have been given authority by Lord Captain Commander Niall over your troops, over you. I have papers if you need to see them. It's like, oh, great. So I get sent out here on this mystery and suddenly you're in charge? That sucks. Rather than just hop to and follow, though, he's like, why? Why are we here? I want answers. A whole legion to root out a few dark friends and some grubby little villages. Because that's what Saren tries to say at first. There are dark friends all over Terabon in these small little towns. We're going to find them. No. It's no. like, come on. I need better than that. Saren, he's frustrated. You're just supposed to follow orders, dude. But fine. Okay. If you want something more important to do, you might get your chance. There are strangers that have landed a great force, an army out on Toman Head. More than the Terraboners and the people of Eridoman could together probably hold back. If they break through, we're going to have our hands full. And Jeffram has he's heard some rumors. rumors. So he's like, the rumors are true? Arter Hawkwing's armies have returned? Which, if you're just reading straight, you don't really know what that means. No, but that is significant. And trust us, you will learn more about that in the time to come. And we switch perspectives. Well, Saren has a response, though. Eh. He says, he does not confirm that. He says, strangers and probably dark friends. That's because questioners think everyone are dark friends. That's right. Now we switch back, yes, to Faldara again. But, but this, this time, time, a POV we've not had before. Leandrin Sedai. Yeah. Leandrin is walking through the women's apartments, heading to Lady Amalisa's quarters. And she finds her with other women, having a good time, kicking back, being relaxed. They're reading a naughty book. That's basically it. They're reading some book about how men are, and they're giggling, and just, <laughs> they're just being girls, having a fun time. This is not Leandrin was invited to come visit. This is Leandrin deciding to go visit now, and she very abruptly says, the rest of you, out. I need to talk to Lady Amalisa. Mm -hmm. She's very rude, but she's Aes Sedai, and they have great respect for the Aes Sedai in the Borderlands, so okay, and they all bow to her, and they and they head out. And Leandrin is not nice in this conversation. No, I mean, Amalisa is right away trying to be a good host now, and it's it's nice to see you, and, and bam, Leandrin says, Do you walk in the light, my daughter? Major insult yeah, she's to someone Shinarin. in the borderlands. You're basically saying, perhaps, are you a dark friend? <laughs> yeah. it's a... What the? From the get-go, she's putting her on her back foot so that she is not... But again, we're getting Leandrin's point of view. So when that question gets Amelisa's back up and she gets insulted and angry, Leandrin's like, oops, okay, that's not the response I wanted. Okay, I gotta, I gotta turn this. Mm -hmm. I gotta try something else. So she has an agenda here. Leandrin's trying to get something accomplished. And getting Amelisa angry is not gonna help. Nope. So instead, she shifts it around to say, you know, the Amerlin seat is here because of corruption. There are corrupt men here. And I'm Radaja. You know, we hunt out corrupt men. But it's not always just men who can use the one power. There are corrupt men high and low mm -hmm. in all places, and we hunt them out. 
And she takes the conversation to the point of implying Lord Egomar is who we are here yeah. investigating. Leandrin does some serious fear-mongering here, messes with Emily's head, Has starts her gaslighting her, and then goes a step further. When Amalisa basically drops to her knees begging, no, not, not my brother, no, please, not that. Bam. Leandrin uses a little bit of power. Yeah, she does a little trick with the power. Something we learn, because again, we're getting Leandrin's point of view, something she's been able to do since childhood. It was the first thing she really learned, the way she learned she could use the power. Mm-hmm. Something that when she got to the White Tower and was being trained and they learned she could do this, she was forbidden to do it. In other words, this is wrong. Yeah. You don't use the power this way. It feels reminiscent to what Moraine describes should have happened when she gave the boys the coins. Something that would make you feel the need to do what the person wants. Happy to comply. Yes. This is a, a way where Leandrin is able to compel Amalisa to want to please her. To make her happy. And and Leandrin explains that she doesn't have a real strength with this. She can't make someone do something they totally would never want to do. You know, if she was to try to make Emilisa kill her brother, nope, it's not going to happen. Okay. But if she can manipulate her into believing her on certain things, she could make her do things that seem reasonable to but nefarious would, ends. Yeah, would it normally seem reasonable? But she can make it seem reasonable. Exactly. So here's what she does. She gets her all worked up convinced that well first she, she asks about the dark friend who came with moiraine pat and fane right so emilisa clarifies no 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 he, they didn't come together okay she moves past that but we were we get the point leandrin was interested in pat and fane for some reason we don't hear anything really more about that then she moves on to the three boys and she points out these boys that were with moraine where are they they're important. I went searching for them and I couldn't find them. Emilisa doesn't know where. Leandrin, again, using the one power, convinces them they are dark friends. In fact, they are. They're worse than dark friends. And they must be found. Your entire keep is in danger if they are not found. Command your servants to search everywhere. Find these boys. I must have them. I need to get them out of here in complete secrecy so I can take them back to Arvallon. And to drive it home, she to make sure she's definitely going to do it. Puts a final spike of fear in Emilisa and says, hey, the Black Aja. You ever heard of them? Evil Aes Sedai. <gasps> no, no. It's rumors. Can't be true. It's real. And they're here. There are Black Aja here. Any sister you pass could be black. I cannot tell you who, but if you do what I'm asking, I can offer you my protection. Okay, will do. Yes, thank you. And Amalisa basically is like, oh, thank you. I will do this. I will see it so. And she also has orders, tell no one that she's doing this on behalf of Leandrin. Leandrin leaves, mm -hmm. mission accomplished, but says to herself, okay, that's done. Now I got a lot more I got to do still tonight. My orders have been explicit. Yeah. Huh. Her orders from who? What is that about? It seems... Any speculation? To me, we are built to not like Leandrin. <laughs> and it is super apparent. It's it's like trying to throw in our face and say, hey, maybe Leandrin's a bad one. Maybe she's black. Maybe she has evil orders. It's just throwing it in our face. Yeah. Which, who knows, maybe it's a red herring, but it seems like a no-brainer. Yep. 
Okay, one last tidbit to finish the chapter. Yes, it's literally the last like couple paragraphs. It is. We switch back to the dungeon to Pat and Fane. What he's, a perspective. He's sitting in his cell with a smile on his face. He's waiting. And he knows he won't have to wait much longer. Again, his POV. So we know this is what he's thinking. He's expecting something. And the door to the outer guard room opens. And there's a figure outlined in the doorway. And Fane stands and says, You! Ha! Not who I expected. Surprises for everyone, eh? Well, come on. The night's getting old and I want some sleep sometime. And Pat and Fane is released. End of episode. Something's gonna happen. Yeah, when a madman gets released, it's probably not good. Come back next time to find out what's going on. It probably won't be as long of an episode because, man, this one was long. This is gonna be our record, absolutely. But it was a good way to kick off the Great Hunt. We had this chunk of stuff. It was worth getting through. The Great Episode for the Great Hunt. (laughs) All right, thanks for being with us, everybody. If you're valuing what you're hearing, we encourage you to subscribe and tell other people about podcasts. You can partly do that by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts or any of the other normal vehicles for listening to podcasts. You can reach us if you want to talk to us through our email, fantasyfortheages at gmail.com, or our social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even better, come chat with us directly on Discord. Yep, you heard one of our listeners interacting with us throughout the podcast today. We welcome having people with us and tell us what you agree with, tell us what we're getting wrong. Just have a good time participating. Trust us, usually it isn't this long. Kudos (laughs) to DT. He dropped out about 30 seconds before the end of the episode. He almost made the whole haul. That was really impressive. And one other way that you can participate at a higher level with us is support us on Patreon. We provide some extra benefits for those who do give us a little bit of financial support, just a little attaboys, you know. Like coming and sitting in and talking with us live. Yes, yes, those are for our patrons. We also will be having some special episodes that are just for our patrons. We do ask input specifically from them at times, and you get early access to our recordings. You don't have to wait for just when they come out official. get them as soon as they're ready nice things we try to take care of our patrons we do appreciate support all right i believe that is enough for one episode what do you Uh, think Zach? let's be done (laughs) it's been fun but it's been long i think i have to use the bathroom me too yeah all right we'll talk to you next time